Hi, this is Marissa, and I'm so glad you've tuned in to Grace Church Podcast. I think that because you tuned in, you'll better understand your place in God's kingdom. At Grace Church, we're living out our ancient faith in modern times, and we believe that these next few minutes will draw you closer to Jesus. To find out more about what's going on at Grace, visit us at graceocala.org. I'm going to look at uh, our second reading today, the reading from Galatians. And so if you want to look along with me, I'd love for you to look at some of this text. Um, and I also just want to note that the songs that we've been singing, particularly the song about, uh, this last song about the Holy Spirit, it fits so perfectly with where I want to talk about today because it's in Galatians that Paul, that Paul talks, us, talks to uh, the church in Galatia, which I'll say a bit more about in a second, but also to us about what it means to live in the Spirit. And such a complicated phrase, yet so meaningful. So I want to look at that today. But first, let's talk about rules. Life, as you know, as I know, is full of rules, spoken and unspoken. They, of course, start young when, we, um, when our moms and dads and our teachers tell us to be kind, to be sweet, to play fair, to be nice. And as we get older... We learn more sayings about life that we didn't turn into rules like do to others as you want them to do to you or love your neighbor as yourself or eat everything on your plate. That last one's not in the Bible, by the way. Just don't go looking for it. Today in Galatians chapter 5, we read, live by the Spirit. Right there in that third paragraph. Live by the Spirit, which we can easily turn into another rule. Okay, one more thing that I have to do with God. I have to live by the Spirit, which maybe sounds nice. I don't know. Live by the Spirit until you start thinking about what does that mean? How do you live by the Spirit? Does that mean live as God intended? Does that mean live like He wants? Does that mean that I have to do all these nice things and make everybody around me happy and I know that God will then bless me and that's living by the Spirit? And if I do this, does that mean everybody else is going to do that to me? Probably not. So, before we go any further, what does it mean? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? What does that look like? Now, before we get to answering that question, let's give a little background here on the church in Galatia. That's who Paul is writing to. Now, Paul founded this church. He started it. He cares very much about them. And he writes this letter, this book of Galatians. You should read the whole thing because it's about freedom. It's about freedom, the freedom from the power of sin that has plagued us, freedom from the law that we use to measure ourselves against. You might just use a different word for that word law, and what you might say is the rules by which you measure your life. It's freedom to let Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, do something new and fresh in us. And I hope that excites you a little bit because that's what Paul's talking about. And as this letter comes to a close in this final chapter, Paul tells us that when we allow God's Spirit, when we allow this Holy Spirit to come and live in us, it produces these Christ-like qualities, these virtue that he talked about. Now, I hope that you heard that because it's really important. That as we allow God's Spirit to live in us and through us, then 
there is this production of these Christ-like qualities and virtues. And so what I want to start by saying from the very beginning here is that these things that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5, these are not things that you could just purpose in your mind and say, I'm going to be more loving, more joyous, more uh, kind, more caring. You can try, and we often do, right? We try all the time. You know what? I'm going to be more peaceful. How's that work? Additionally, think about all the things that are clamoring for your attention. All the voices that are telling you, live this way, put away this much money for your 401k, you know, lose that weight, do all these things. There's all these things pushing on our attention for all the time, and we think, wait, on top of all of that, I have to be good? Yikes. Now, just over in 1 Corinthians, another book that Paul wrote, He uses the image of a body in chapter 12 to compare that to the human church or to the the church that we live in, to a full functioning church, and describes what the Spirit will do when that body is operating properly. Here in Galatians 5, he talks about fruit. Why? Why did Paul talk about fruit? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are lots of kinds of fruit. You know that. I know that. I won't. I did not even go look to talk about how many varieties of fruit there are out there, but the list is huge. Of course, apples and bananas, cherries and kumquats. I don't even know what a kumquat is, but whatever. There are a ton of them. I know what it is. Don't tell me later. Um, You're going to bring me a bunch of kumquats. Don't. Um, They're bitter. I don't like them. Um, Fruit have similarities. Seeds skin, stuff like that, but each one is distinct in its shape and its size and its taste and its color. The same is true for the fruit of the Spirit. They're each distinct in how they get played out in the world and in our own lives. Fruit also is the natural outgrowth of a healthy plant. Healthy apple tree makes good apples. Healthy blueberry bush makes good blueberries. As the branches are connected to the main part of the bush or the tree, it does what it's supposed to do in a really good way. And I think Paul chose this image of fruit for exactly the same reason, that as we are connected to God, we produce these fruits, not by our own efforts, but because the Holy Spirit is in us, doing what the Holy Spirit does. And so Paul did not write... The works of the Spirit are, but instead the fruit of the Spirit is. That is, when God's Spirit is in us, this stuff just comes out in all kinds of cool and exciting and ways that we couldn't expect, but it's all natural. And this is really the difference between doing Christ or doing discipleship or doing what God said and just being who he said we were called to be, being what he always wanted us to be. You see here, this is the truth, brothers and sisters. From the very outset, I want you to hear this very clearly, that growing in Christ, knowing him more, has far less to do with reading the Bible and going to church and praying before your meals than it does about making space in our lives for Christ to do what he wants to do to take up residence inside of us. When he does that, those other things become natural and easy for us rather than rules that we just try to follow and fail. 
The same is true about these virtues that Paul talks about here, these fruit of the Spirit. As you try to grit your teeth and work harder at being joyous or peaceful or kind, you know, you can only do it for so long and then forget it. Why bother? Nobody else is doing it. I have tried to be more patient. Shrug. Doesn't happen when I'm trying. But I have noticed this. When I am connected with Christ, when I am listening to Him, when His Spirit is very evident in me because I have been in this relationship with Him, I suddenly found myself patient, and I don't even know why. Because He is producing that fruit inside of me. Fruit, you see, is good for us. That's why Paul talks about it. It is good for us. And though the Galatians didn't have the food pyramid, which neither do we because they got rid of it, um, they knew that their bodies functioned better when they had their two to four servings of fruit to the every, every single day. It kept them energetic. It kept them healthy. And the same thing that is true for apples and oranges and pears is true about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are good for us. And when they flow out of us, we just feel better. We just feel healthy. Now, I've taught and studied the fruit of the Spirit many times in my Christian life. And oftentimes, I treat them like they're personal attributes, like they are private virtues. We just got to try to be a little more joyful, and then you'll get the fruit of the Spirit. But that's not how it works. Instead, when the Spirit produces these qualities in me, I become more Christ-like. We, as a church, represent His body in a way that we didn't quite imagine. And those virtues become community virtues. We become known for our love, for our peace, for our kindness. Look what Paul says in our reading today. You were called to freedoms, brothers and sisters, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. The church in Galatia was facing some pretty serious relational issues. Instead of loving another, they were hurting each other. And so Paul says, no, turn to the Spirit and allow this fruit to be born out of you. And he's not just talking to the individuals of that church. He's talking to their whole community. These fruit of the Spirit, they are meant to be practiced and experienced together. Not just in your own private way as you go about your life. And it puts this whole new wrinkle on the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just about you and God. It's about you and God and me doing this together. This is what it means to live this out. So with that in mind, I want to very briefly, but yet very pointedly, I hope, look at the first of the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't think it was first by mistake. That when God's Spirit is in us, when we are connected to Him, when we have this relationship with Him, we have, what was it? What's the first one? Love. Love. Now, let's understand a little bit about what Paul's talking about here. The word that Paul uses for love is a word that we only find in the New Testament. And 
Uh, it's not a word that was actually used very much in that culture or that time. The word is agape. Now, if you've been in church for a while, maybe your whole life, you're familiar with that word, agape. And it means love. But it doesn't mean the kind of love that maybe we're used to hearing, this emotional love or relational love. In fact, there are three aspects to this agape love that I want to tease out very quickly for you. The first is that agape love is unconditional. It is not contingent on the other person's performance or desirability. It is unconditional. It is also willful. It's not a matter of feeling or inclination, but rather it's a decision to act in another person's interest. So it's willful, it's unconditional, and it's also sacrificial. It costs us something to love this way. Not just in the giving, but in the giving up for the sake of someone else. And so agape love means that We act unconditionally no matter who they are. We act willfully no matter how you feel. And you act sacrificially no matter how much the cost. And I could say a lot more about that. But rather than just talk about what that love is, I'd like to give you just three quick stories to illustrate each of those in the hopes of inspiring you as we leave this place today and you live that love out in the world, you think back on these stories and think, yeah, That's God's spirit in me. So let's first look at unconditional love. That is loving no matter who they are. Loving someone no matter who they are. There's a woman named Gladys who was a missionary in India. And she stunned the nation of India, the whole nation, in 1999 when she spontaneously, unpretentiously, humbly and genuinely forgave the militant Hindus who had captured her husband and two sons and burned them alive. Horrific, horrific, horrific event. Now before we talk about her, let's get a context of India just for a second because we need to make sure we understand her unconditional act. India and Pakistan the birth of those two nations came at an incredibly high price. When they were free from British rule, immediately there was this incredible uh, infighting between the religious sects of that country. Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs began to riot sectarianly across the nation. Ten million people were made homeless almost overnight. And about a million folks were killed, including somebody you know, Mahatma Gandhi. Violence was incredibly well-known in India. And I'd love to say that through secular democracy and education, that as they informed the people of India that violence isn't the right way, that things would change, but in fact, it hasn't. What has instead happened is India has become a country that is continually plagued by violence and revenge. That is, once violence has occurred, let's get them back. Let's hurt them again. And so... Hindu-Muslim clashes are very common where, in fact, they have burned whole trainloads of innocent passengers as a way to get back at people, and that has led to weeks and weeks of rioting. Violence has begot more violence, 
And that is the way of the world in India. And so that is why when Gladys forgave her family's attackers, it became this national phenomenon. Her unconditional love broke the chain of cause and effect in a nation where that's all they ever had. You do this, you get that. And as the nation began to wrestle with her forgiveness, Hindus and Muslims, Sikhs and Buddhists and Jan and secular leaders gathered in city after city to praise her as a saint that they all needed to emulate. How'd she do it? Out of her own ability? Out of her own power? Out of her own strength? She says no, that her forgiveness was only possible because God's spirit was in her, moving through her, and it was this gift of unconditional love that she wanted to give to the Indian people. And she knew a love greater than a quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You hit me, I hit you. And so in the worst moment of her life, a moment that I do not want to even imagine, the fruit of the Spirit comes, comes out of Gladys with unconditional love. That's agape. As much as agape love is unconditional, it's also willful love. That is, no matter how you feel, you're choosing to love. In his book entitled To End All Wars, Ernest Gordon tells the story of his experience in a Japanese prisoner of war camp along the, uh, the River Kwai. You may know it from the movie Bridges Over the River Kwai. The true story is that according to Gordon, who was in these camps, is that the prisoner of war camps were brutal places. Prisoners were very frequently abused, tortured, and worked to exhaustion as their captors tried to complete this railroad. The prisoners, the soldiers who were there, they hated their captors. But the camp was filled with rancor and despair because you had to fight for your own survival. No one helped another because there were no guarantees. One day, the prisoners were taken out of the camp to work along a section of the railroad, and at the end of the day, the guards lined them up to do a prisoner count and to make sure that all the tools that had been assigned to them were still there. As they did the count, one of the shovels was missing. The guards demanded that the man who had either hidden or taken the shovel or lost the shovel, that he come forward. But nobody moved. They just stood in the line. The guys with the machine guns, the guards, said, if you don't move, we'll kill all of you. So somebody better own this. And finally, one of the men stepped forward, said it was him. The guards calmly walked over, picked up another shovel, and they beat him to death in front of the prisoners. Then they marched back to camp. When they got back to camp, they realized that there was no shovel missing at all, that there had been an oversight and that there had been a miscount at the work site so that the soldier who had stepped forward, in fact, laid down his life to save the others. Soon after this, another man in the prisoner camp got sick Deathly ill, in fact. Now, in times before this, when someone got sick, they were left to their own devices. Hope you make it, but very few did. But this time, a man named Scotty took it upon himself to care for the sick man. He gave him his blanket 
so that he would not shiver through the knife. And he saved his meager rations of bread and soup, and he fed it to this sick man. The sick man recovered, but Scotty died. He had literally given himself away to save his friend. Two amazing acts, but what's more amazing was what came next, because those two willful acts of love, the choosing to love in those moments transformed the cap, the, the whole camp. And in the days that followed, the hatred, the bitterness, the selfishness that had really consumed the prisoners, it began to diminish. They began to act in love. They shared their rations. They nursed each other's wounds. And they showed compassion and kindness wherever possible, even to their captors. So much so that when the allies came to liberate, liberate their camp, the prisoners stood between the troops and their captors and said, the killing must end. They saved their own captors. Willful love transformed that prisoner of war camp. And it certainly can transform our church. It can certainly transform your family. And it can certainly transform you as you put the interests of others before yours. So, Unconditional love, willful love, and finally, sacrificial love. That is a love that loves no matter the cost. The story is told of a six-year-old girl who had become deathly ill with a terrible disease. And her only hope was a blood transfusion. But her rare blood further complicated the matters, and they didn't know what to do. And so when all other possibilities had been exhausted, the physicians approached her nine-year-old brother and asked him if he would help. The young boy's lip trembled when he said, will giving my blood save Sarah? And they said, yes, we think it will. And so the boy said, yes, okay, I'll do it. The procedure began, and the child lay quietly next to his sister, and when the transfusion was complete, the doctors thanked the boy for saving his sister's life. The boy smiled weakly and then began to cry and said, Doctors, when do I die? And it was at that point that everybody in the room realized that the boy had made the choice to give his blood, believing that it would cost him everything to save his sister. That is sacrificial love. Agape love, acting in the interest of others no matter who they are, how we feel, or what the cost. That love changes everything. It changes us. It changes how we know God. It changes how the Holy Spirit moves in us. It changes how we react to a terrible and, in, and seemingly never-ending violent world. Putting another person's well-being ahead of us not because they're lovable or likable or because we feel like it in the moment or because it's convenient or comfortable or even reasonable. This is what it means to live a life in the Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about. Live by the Spirit, he says. So how does that happen? By learning to regularly listen and yield to the Spirit of God over your own thoughts. Every time you do that, each and every time, it becomes more a part of you. It becomes more natural. And it becomes more natural, it becomes more normal. There will be a day, if you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you this much, 
that you will do these fruit of the Spirit and you won't even recognize you're doing them. People will say, man, you are amazingly kind. How do you love so much? Why are you so patient? Where does your joy come from? And you'll say, I don't know. Just is. Just me. Imagine. Imagine what our church would be like if all of us became people who instinctively acted in the interest of others, naturally put their needs ahead of ours. Imagine the transformative impact we'd have on each other and on our community and on the world as we lived this all out, if we all did this. This is what it means to have a life lived in the Spirit. This is what it means to love. And this is who we are, Grace Church. Amen. We're so glad you've been a part of our conversation today. Our prayer is that you will take what you've heard and bring it to the Lord with the question, what would you have me do? To find out more about all the good things that are happening on our campus and how you can get involved, feel free to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and at our website, graceocala.org. Go in peace.